If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. I'm Rob Attar, the deputy editor. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the section editor. And this is our October 2010 podcast. Coming up this month, we have... This wonderful moment when he calls Hitler a sentimentalane, which I think can be nicely translated as a big teddy bear. That was R.J.B. Bosworth on new revelations about Benito Mussolini. There's so much evidence to show that parents were extremely distressed and grieved when their children became ill and died. That was Hannah Newton on the plight of bereaved parents in the 17th century. Now, if Claudius can go to Britain and actually achieve something permanent, by implication, he's better than a god. That was Miles Russell on the key moments of Roman Britain. monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. Now, one of the Italian publishing sensations of last year was the diaries of Benito Mussolini's last mistress, Claretta Petacci. They contained fascinating examples of the Italian dictator's political views, combined with revelations about the couple's sexual relationship. Mussolini's biographer, RJB Bosworth, has analysed the diaries, and I spoke to him recently about what new light they can shed on Il Duce. We're talking today about the diaries of Claretta Petacci. So I guess the obvious first question is, who was Claretta Petacci? Claretta Petacci, I guess, is best known from a photographic image of her dying beside her lover, Benito Mussolini, and then when their bodies were taken into Milan and abused, particularly Mussolini's, they were hung up together outside a petrol station there, and it's really that sight of her hanging upside down beside the dictator that's the thing that she's remembered for. So she was a young woman, in other words, from a rather respectable Roman bourgeois family who, for the last 10 years of his life, was Mussolini's lover. And how did she meet Mussolini in the first place? She seems to have met him four years earlier, in 1932, when she was only about 20 years old. She was wealthy enough to have her own car, and allegedly they just bumped into each other when Mussolini also had taken time off work and was driving around somewhere out towards the um, Tyrrhenian Sea from Rome, in other words, out towards some beach place. After that, she seems, if anything, to have been the initiator of um, a further relationship. She was married, and then uh, by 1936, her husband was rather conveniently translated to be naval attaché. I think it was in Tokyo, and it does seem that from 1936, the two indeed became lovers. Mussolini, of course, had very many lovers, and so um, this was by no means a particularly unusual occurrence in fascist Italy. So why have her diaries only just come to light now? Well, again, it's a fascinating story, really, because they uh, seem to have appeared fairly shortly after the end of the Second World War and to be taken into the hands of the Italian police, who simply sat on them and have continued to apply a 70-year rule about their publication. 
So what we have so far, in fact, is only a selection in a book form, a selection from her diaries between, well, according to the title of the book, 1932 to um, 1938, but in reality, for mainly in 1937, 1938. And then apparently there are thousands of pages to come. In the full diary, it seems that for the year 1938, she managed to fill 1,810 pages into her diary. I guess initially, I think everyone had some doubts about the diary, given the story of the Hitler diaries and all that, and there'd also been earlier incidents with the Mussolini diaries, but there seems absolutely no doubt about the veracity of these diaries. They are an extraordinary historical document in many ways. And what are the main themes of the diary? What are the kind of subjects she's discussing? I think discuss is too strong a word for somebody like Clarita Patacci. I mean, don't think Clarita Patacci should be regarded as in any sense an intellectual young woman. She did on one occasion before she and her dictator became lovers talk about her desire to become a film star. And in a way, she perhaps embodies that sort of aspirant woman who looks to her body as a way of somehow making her way in life. So the diaries are, in fact, mainly full of Mussolini and her sex life. She's extraordinarily obsessive and obsessed about this. And so page after page after page is full of stories about um, how they had sex, how often they had sex, who else Mussolini was having sex with, what they said to each other about sex, and that sort of thing. I haven't seen the diaries after 1939, but I gather they're the same right through the Second World War. So when while great events are occurring, as it were, the ones that historians normally write about what Coretta was really thinking about and writing down page after page after page was her sex life with this man who was in fact very much old enough to be her father. She herself was actually a couple of years younger than Mussolini's eldest daughter. On the other hand, from time to time, she does almost in passing record Mussolini's commentary on political matters because actually when Mussolini was, well, I hesitate to use the word working, but perhaps that's what he was doing, when Mussolini was working as dictator, he often had Claretta with him. And so uh, he would be doing something official, semi-official, something to do with what he thought of as his power, and Claretta would be there, and so she would write down what he said or what he was doing on all these sorts of matters. Do they give a new insight into his political views at all? Well, I don't think it's a totally new insight. I must say I think they largely confirm what we know, especially, I guess, from the famous diaries of his son-in-law, Galeazzo Ciano, who was married to this elder daughter, Edda, and was in many ways the dauphin of the fascist regime minister of foreign affairs from the time that Clarita was Mussolini's mistress on. It's an image which is complicated because um, some commentators from the diaries have picked up on the fact that from time to time in the Mussolini bitterly evinces hatred for the Jews is notably anti-Semitic. And we are talking about a period, especially in 1938, which is when Italy moves from what had seemed to be the previously relatively amicable relationship between the fascist dictatorship and Italy's Jewish population to anti-Semitic legislation. And there's long been a historical debate about what prompted this, what did it mean, and so on. And so some commentators have fixed on the fact that Mussolini saying things to Claretta like, I would like to kill all the Jews. I mean, that's 
not quite what he says, but he does on a number of occasions imply that it would be good to kill all the Jews to utterly eliminate them from Italy. And he will also say that he's always hated Jews and so on, and will, for example, tell her stories about one of his other early lovers, Margarita Safati, who is Jewish, and about how he didn't really like having sex with her and so on and so forth because she was Jewish. And so this appalling sort of tabloid racism that is being recorded here. I suppose I think that actually the diaries provide a slightly more nuanced image, and it's one that's certainly not to Mussolini's credit, but it's of a politician who like showing off, really, who will say dramatic things and dramatically negative things, dramatically hostile things about Jews, but he will also say similar things about the French. He'll say it about the English. Um, he thinks that uh, the English are hopelessly cynical and corrupt, that he will say it about Romanians. He will say it about Slavs. You name it, really, and he will say it from time to time. He also has a curious, this curious evidence of his ambiguous relationship with Adolf Hitler and also in what is becoming the deepening political alliance between fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and what we call the Axis. There he will from time to time express a sort of fear of Germany, but then he will also try to cheer himself up by saying, well, the Italians anyway always beat the Germans when it counts. And what's more, Hitler um, really admires me. I'm really great. Hitler really understands that I'm an extraordinarily brilliant man and that I have the Italians utterly under my control. This wonderful moment when he calls Hitler a sentimentalone, which I guess I think can be nicely translated as a big teddy bear. And that seems to be both a dramatic evidence of Mussolini's psychological um, incompetence, his inability to understand Hitler, but also it tells you a lot, I think, about the nature of this alliance, because we do have historians who want to ascribe ideology to Mussolini want to claim that he's driven by some sort of clear set of ideas that are part of the whole concept of fascism. But it does seem to me that what the diaries are showing us is that's an extraordinary exaggeration to try to to put onto this dictator who's got a far more humdrum mind and is really an executive who's getting through his day and trying to whistle to keep his courage up, really, about what power means and, and trying to show off something as simple as that. I mean, Mussolini emerges, I think, as a very mediocre figure, historically speaking, from these diaries. So would you say in historical terms that's the main value of the diary is that they really emphasise this mediocrity of Mussolini? I think that probably is the main value and I think it's an important value because I guess it does seem to me that a lot of the discussion about fascist Italy is linked between the really two positions, one of which wants to argue that line and the other one which wants to in a way, intellectualise the regime, give it a more profound philosophy and ideological intent that I think it ever really succeeded in having. What has been the reaction in Italy to the publication of the diaries? Well, that too is perhaps a rather sad story. After all, Italy has a prime minister who also seems to have his own sexual path through life. And I guess some people have wondered about parallels. The editor of the diaries provides a very inadequate introduction, I think, where he really wants to forgive Mussolini for this story that's being related in these diaries. Mussolini has made quite a comeback in Italy in the last 10 or 20 years. Italy perhaps has never really fully reckoned with the death toll of this regime and also indeed with its incompetence. I mean, Berlusconi, for example, told the English journalist Nicholas Farrell that Mussolini never killed anyone, which is 
an extraordinary statement to make about a regime that I guess seems to me anyway to have been responsible for about a million premature deaths, many of them in the wars that it launched notably, I guess, in its dreadful colonial campaigns in Libya and Ethiopia, where it used 1930s-style weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons against um, native populations and so on. So the diaries in Italy, still you'll find critical historians, I guess, anti-fascist historians. Um, I think perhaps of Nicola Transvaglia, for example, leading anti-fascist historian who's used them, but he's used them actually to say, oh, well, Mussolini was always an anti-Semite. So I think in a way the level of discussion of the diaries in Italy has been rather disappointing and continues to leave the problem of just how you historicise fascism in that country as incomplete. Now, obviously the diaries are primarily of interest because of what they tell us about Mussolini, but is Patacci in any way of interest in her own right? I don't think she's particularly interesting in her own right, although I suppose, I guess, this obsession seems to me actually to be interesting. And I suppose I think, in a way, the pages of uh, sexual description are interesting. Obviously, they're not interesting for straight up and down students of politics, particularly. But on the other hand, as a study of just what can motivate a person and how people will behave, I mean, to find Mussolini, for example, in I think it's 1937, having a conversation where he launches the idea that he has the most beautiful body in Italy. And of course, Claretta is expected to say, yes, of course, you have the most beautiful body in Italy. But then he will say, oh, maybe that's not quite right, because Margarita Safati said I had short, fat legs, and look, I do have short, and so there's this terrible, banal stuff. But I guess the history of banality is interesting. And that might sound like a complicated thing to say, but in a way, the huge pile of banality in these diaries seems to me something that will really last in the history of the 20th century and the historiography of the 20th century because we have it here written down I mean so many things that you feel stupid when you say that Mussolini is so much a man in his 50s with a young lover I mean talking in a predictable way about his wife has never understood him and she doesn't really read enough books Claretta didn't read any books but that didn't matter all these cliches that come out in this story is that in a sense we know, but now here we have actual evidence in this diary. So I think the political side of it is interesting, and I think the non-political side is at least as interesting for a social historian, a historian of human mores, and perhaps of the lights and shadows that we all have as human beings. Because I guess in our study of dictators, we are often rather obsessed by Adolf Hitler, who always seems somehow crazed, this mad fanatic, this person who we can comfortably put on the shelf and say he's utterly other. With Mussolini, he's a dictator who is certainly not... And one of the things that turns up in the diary is that Mussolini, while being dictator of Italy, rings Claretta at least a dozen times a day. And I said to a friend, well, that seems a lot for what presumably was a busy CEO trying to run a country, and was told very firmly, well, I bet you there are plenty of CEOs today who email their lovers at least as often as that. And I suppose that's true. Maybe sad, but true and interesting, I think, about the human condition. That was RJB Bosworth of the Universities of Reading and Western Australia. His updated biography of Mussolini has recently been published by Bloomsbury. Plus, you can read more about Claretta Patacci's diaries in our October edition. High rates of child mortality were a sad fact of the 17th century, and a quarter of children died before their 10th birthday. In this month's magazine, Hannah Newton uses the correspondence of the Verney family from Buckinghamshire to explore how 17th century parents coped with the death of a child, as well as examining how childhood sickness was viewed and treated during the period. 
So, Hannah, you talk about the Verney family um, in your feature. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about the story behind the family and what happened to their children? Well, um, the story is it's about uh, Mary and Ralph Verney, who are a gentry couple living in Buckinghamshire in the 17th century. Um, and during the 1640s, Ralph and Mary were living apart from one another. Ralph was living in France and Mary was living in England. It was to do with some um, problems with the Civil War that were going on and the fact that Ralph was in debt and he didn't want to be imprisoned, so he was remaining in France in the hope that that would um, help his situation. Um, and during this time, he was looking after his daughter, eight-year-old Peg, um, and Mary, his wife, was in England with their baby son, Ralph, who had just been born. And during several months, um, Peg became very ill and actually died. And meanwhile, Ralph was writing very regularly to his wife and also to other people in his family. And these letters are extremely useful for finding out a bit about the experience of losing a child because Ralph writes in great detail about Peg's illness to his uncle. So what happens is that she, she became ill of... Um, an illness characterised by vomiting and diarrhoea um, and also she had a, a very severe mouth ulcer which seemed to kind of penetrate her jawbone and she died after about a month or so um, but Ralph was afraid of telling his wife because he didn't want to cause her too much upset so he kept it from her and she began to get suspicious um, and eventually she found out and it was during writing a letter to her husband that she heard the news of Peg's death we tend to assume that high rates of child mortality in the 17th century meant parents remained emotionally detached from their children. Is this supported by the correspondence of the family? Um, definitely it isn't. And in fact, during my research, I found that there's so much evidence to show that parents were extremely distressed and grieved when their children became ill and died. Um, and this is really demonstrated very nicely in the letters of the Verney family. What were the most common types of childhood sickness during the periods? Well, um, the actual sicknesses they were dying from was, were probably mainly infectious diseases um, such as uh, smallpox, a lot of um, respiratory diseases like whooping cough and diphtheria um, and also influenza, scarlet fever and many types of digestive um, illnesses such as diarrhoea and salmonella. Um, but the actual terms of disease that were used at this time were very different. They used to have a whole range of um, categories of illness which are slightly different from today's. Um, diseases. And would most of these have resulted in death? Not all of them, um, but there was a constant fear. As soon as a child became ill, parents were constantly um, and immediately afraid that death might um, occur because they were so familiar with the high death rates. So really it was a very terrifying experience for parents. In his letters, Ralph writes frantically to his uncle, uh, Dr William Denton, for advice about his daughter's illness. How would doctors have treated patients in the 17th century and would this have differed for children? That's a very good question. Um, in this period, when someone became ill, they were usually treated at home. Um, so they didn't go to hospital and they would have been treated by usually in mothers, um, housewives and other relatives, um, including fathers as well, actually. Um, doctors and surgeons were also used, but there was a whole variety of um, different types of healers um, and medicine was very much widespread knowledge that most people would have known something about. So they were treated with um, a mixture of um, remedies which, which were intended to remove the bad humours of the body which were thought to cause disease. So this involved bloodletting, um, vomits and purges, um, kind of laxatives, and also a lot of treatments which didn't actually cause any kind of evacuation but were thought to work internally. So with children there was um, a great fear of 
using remedies that were too violent or aggressive. So they tended to favour more gentle remedies such as baths and ointments um, and remedies that could be taken um, internally but wouldn't cause any kind of evacuation. Um, and they also um, added sugar, um, they added cinnamon, tried to improve the taste and smell of medicines because they thought children were particularly sensitive to um, discomfort but also to bitter tastes and to pain. Um, so there was a definite, I think before Mary Poppins, I think there was this idea that um, a spoonful of sugar would help um, when it came to particularly young children. So yes, they did adapt medicines um, in many ways. They also tended to favour remedies such as regulating the child's environment. So they thought if they could try and make sure the child was eating particular foods and drinking particular drinks, then that would help prevent illness. And I suppose the child would have seen quite a lot of death in their lives anyway, with especially in this family with the you know, losing siblings. How would they have felt about death and illness? Ah, um, well, when I started my research, I expected it to be a very, very sad um, kind of story. And, and I expected um, that children would have found illness, perhaps as we might do today, to be a very distressing, unpleasant, horrible thing. And the idea of death to be quite terrifying. Um, but I did find that actually um, the experience in this period was slightly different, partly because um, children had so many siblings and friends and family members who had already died. Death wasn't perhaps as terrifying as, as it might be today. And in fact, occasionally there are quite young children who are quite resigned to death, really, and occasionally even seem to look forward to dying because they they believe very literally in heaven and they missing their parents and missing other relatives. So I think there was a kind of less depressing part of, of illness and death than we might have today. But having said that, um, illness could obviously be very unpleasant. And pain relief wasn't really very effective in this time. And the remedies are often, whilst they tried to make them relatively painless, they could still be quite unpleasant. And, and what sort of impact would uh, a child's sickness have had on family life? Um, it had a very disruptive impact, really, because... Um, because there was the main place of treatment was the home, it really affected every aspect of family life. Um, so parents often used to write in their letters how disruptive it was to their everyday activities, such as letter writing and business and um, looking after um, the family's kind of estate and um, servants and and really mainly, I think, because they were spending so much of their time um, tending the sick child and. Um, for example, there's a, a clergyman called Isaac Archer who um, wrote a diary in the 1600s um, and he spent um, days and nights sitting by his little daughter's bed when she was ill um, with his arm around her, kind of looking after her. Um, and he talked about how he was trying to write his sermons, but he didn't really have time to because <laughs> he was spending so much time looking after his sick child. And he he actually had nine children of whom eight died. So... Um, a huge proportion of his children died. Every time a child became ill, he'd be kind of helping his wife and his servants, looking after the children. So it had a big impact on their daily routines, I think. And from your research, how did parents respond emotionally to the death or illness of a child? Well, I think it was extremely, extremely painful emotionally for parents. I think the thing they found most difficult was witnessing their child suffer pain, particularly illnesses such as smallpox, which were not only extremely painful for the child, but were very deforming. And the pox marks on the child's face were often thought to be extremely um, frightening 
for parents to see. Um, and so I think the main distress for parents is really seeing their children suffering and they so often would express real affliction and grief from, from witnessing that. Um, and then I suppose when children died, they responded in perhaps it was a kind of similar stages of grief that we might see today with extreme kind of distracted grief, as they called it, which was um, grief characterised by crying and weeping and sobbing and kind of um, inability to really think or do anything, which is what Mary Verney seems to experience in her in her case. Um, and, and she talks about how she can't even walk up and down her bedchamber because she's so afflicted. And then that grief would gradually over time become a little bit more stable and um, perhaps a little bit less sharp. Um, but even even so, I think it endured often for a whole lifetime and parents um, often remembered many years later um, their, their children's deaths with great sadness. But I think it was all tempered by this idea that it was necessary to resign yourself to what happened to you in life because they believed that everything that happened was directed by God. And this did act as a powerful motivator for resignation, I think. So whilst they were still extreme, extremely sad at the death of their children, they were able to try and persuade themselves that it was necessary to, to compose themselves and to frame their emotions um, to resignation. And it was obviously a very, very difficult process, but, but parents often did um, manage to ha reach this over time. And I think there's sometimes a bit of a gender difference between mothers and fathers, because fathers in this society, which was extremely patriarchal, um, took on the responsibility of acting as, I suppose, the protector and the um, guider for the family. And this meant that they often felt they should try and help their wives manage to control their expressions of grief and occasionally get fathers saying that their wives were much more afflicted than they were and they, they acted as the comforter for their wife. But I think this is probably more of a sign that they're trying to um, construct themselves quite masculine identities, which is all centres around self-control. So it's not really an indication that fathers felt any less grief than their wives. In your feature, you speak about um, emotions seeping out of their, their hearts. Is that how emotions were viewed during the period? Yes, I think they were. I mean, it's quite hard to tell because obviously we use a lot of metaphors even today with, with emotions, talk about um, emotions rising and falling and there's a lot of language today which is associated with liquids when we talk about emotions. But I think in this period they really did regard emotions as physiological things and this was because they believed in the, in the four humours which were four liquids that made up the body and they made up actually everything, every living creature was composed of these four humours. And certain emotions were thought to um, be embodied in these humours. So, for example, black bile was, was thought to bring sadness and was also kind of thought to be sadness. So it was, it was very unclear what was an emotion and what was a humour. And, and sometimes they're so linked that you kind of feel that they're the same thing. And so they do really think of emotions in these physical terms. Um, and all their language really is full of this um, this idea when they're grieving. They talk about how their their hearts are overwhelmed by um, grief. And you spoke earlier about um, the impact that religion would have had um, on a grieving parent. Um, was this where they would have found comfort and consolation on the death of a child? Yes, I think I think without religion, I think they would have. Um, found it almost unbearable because their their main source of consolation is the idea of meeting their child again in heaven and every parent that I've kind of come across in in all these sources and I've looked at kind of hundreds of diaries and letters and other um, personal documents and their main 
source of comfort is definitely looking forward to meeting the child again in heaven. And so a lot of their personal correspondence about the death of the child is about really trying to convince themselves that their child has gone to heaven by emphasising the child's kind of piety and um, goodness. Um, and I think also it has a, had a quite a positive impact in another way, which was that in this period, affliction and pain was in a way seen as quite good for you because they thought that it was a test of your faith and it would make you a better Christian. So ultimately, I think they were able to derive some kind of comfort from knowing that however much pain they were suffering as parents, it was going to help their kind of spiritual side. And ultimately, that would then help them go to heaven, which is what they really wanted, because they obviously wanted to be reunited with their child. So that was a very interlinked thing. But I think religion could also have quite um, a corrosive effect on the morale, because every time a child died, they blamed themselves because they were taught that anything that bad happened to you in your life was caused by God. And so the natural kind of link then was with sin and, and they, they often blame themselves. And um, I think Ralph Verney and Mary Verney did regard the death of Peg as um, a kind of sign of God's crossness with them. And that could be quite distressing, I think. So it was a kind of ambivalent impact really religion. It had, it had a very positive side, but it also could be quite um, depressing and um, a cause of major guilt. That was Hannah Newton on parental grief in 17th century England. You can read Hannah's feature in October's issue. So this year is the 1600th anniversary of the traditional date for the end of Roman Britain, that's 410 AD, and that's when the imperial troops were said to have left the island in order to go back and defend Rome. It's also the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Roman Society in Britain. Now, to commemorate these two events, this month in the magazine we've brought together a panel of historians, archaeologists and historical novelists to pick out the key moments in Roman Britain. One of our panel is Dr Miles Russell, who is Senior Lecturer in Roman Archaeology at Bournemouth University. I caught up with him to discuss some of these pivotal moments in the story of Britannia. The first question to consider, I suppose, with Roman Britain is is the start. We might as well start um, at the beginning. Uh, the first the first Roman who who comes here um, is is Caesar, Julius Caesar, uh, who invades in fifty five BC. Um, so I suppose the, the obvious question is why did he come and why didn't he stay? I, I suppose the, the reason Julius Caesar comes to Britain in the first place is is primarily prestige. Uh, he's the big showman. Um, he's sort of uh, happily um, slaughtering his way across Gaul uh, throughout the earlier part of the 50s BC. Um, and pretty much everything he does is for, um, he goes for the drama uh, of the event uh, and goes for the, the propaganda value. So he crosses the Rhine um, in 55 BC, he's the first German, to, uh, first Roman to leave uh, mainland Europe and, go and, and cross into, into Germany. And he sees Britain as this uh, major target uh, for, for propaganda reasons because no Roman has crossed the mythical ocean. Um, no Roman general certainly has ever led an army successfully into Britain. And Britain's a land of sort of uh, mystery and mythology and, and no one's really uh, knows very much about it. So to get into Britain uh, and to get out again and actually achieve some kind of lasting political settlement there would be seen. It's, it's the kind of thing that the ultimate general of Rome should be able to do. Right. And of course, he justifies it to his own people by saying the Britons have helped the Gauls, our enemies, whilst we've been in Gaul. Therefore, we need to um, show them a lesson. We, we need to show them what Rome means and that they can't mess with us. Okay. Um, so those are the sort of 
primary reason, but I think the main reason is really just um, propaganda. It, it's a major coup getting to Britain. It really sort of uh, boosts his prestige. So then it was a, 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 almost a century um, following that before the Romans came back with, with, with any sort of vengeance. Um, uh, so we get to Claudius in AD 43. What did Claudius do differently to Caesar? Well, Claudius comes to, to Britain in AD 43 uh, primarily because he, when he comes to power, he's somebody who has got no great military or political background. Um, he is somebody who's, who's been kept in the shadows, really, of, um, of, of political life in Rome. That's probably why he's lived so long. Uh, but he, he's got no um, sort of background like, like Caesar. And Britain looks like a, an obvious target for him because to achieve popularity, he needs to get a good military victory. Uh, there's a number of British kings who, over the previous 30 years, have come to Rome asking for help, claiming that they've been ousted from power. Um, so potentially there are friends in Britain if a Roman army does go there. But also, from the propaganda point of view, um, Claudius was very good at, at spinning the story that Caesar went to Britain twice and achieved very little. And Caesar, when he died, was turned into a god by the Roman state. Now, if Claudius can go to Britain and actually achieve something permanent... By implication, he's better than a god, which is a pretty good, you know, thing to have on your CV. It's not bad, is it? it it's not, not bad at all. With that in mind, what do we think the the British response to the the arrival of the Romans in numbers was? Were they was were some pleased to see them and, and, and others less so? Undoubtedly, some were. I mean, when you look at the archaeological evidence, there are a number of um, individuals who seem to be benefiting from from trade with Rome throughout the um, first century BC and first century AD. There's there's a number of sites in Kent, Sussex, Hampshire, with wine storage vessels. These, these big amphora, evidence of trade contacts. These are people who are getting a lot of money, getting a lot of reward by being in contact with the Roman world. And so I would imagine they would see Rome as a way of making money. So the arrival of a Roman army boosts the opportunity to make even more money. Yep. Um, these are the kind of people who don't often feature in the Roman histories because individuals like Diocassius presents us with a history that's very black and white. He doesn't want to confuse his Roman audience, perhaps by saying that you know, some Britons were on our side, some were against. So it's always Britain's bad, Roman's good. Uh, in his sort of uh, account. But the archaeology suggests a, a rather more confused picture. As you get in any war, um, some people are on the side of the invaders and some people aren't. Mm. Uh, and it's often very tricky to establish, you know, who, who is on whose side in, in those kind of circumstances. But undoubtedly, I mean, the, the biggest loser of the invasion of 43 AD were the Trinovantes tribe in Essex based around the area of Colchester because they're the only tribe in southeastern Britain um, who don't have um, their sort of tribal status recognised, that don't have early villas, that don't have new towns. They seem to be subjugated. There is a, a big legionary fortress built over their native capital, which is later turned into a, a colony town for ex-soldiers. So they seem to be a tribe that are particularly subjugated by Rome. So, you know, the feeling is that they are probably the major uh, resistors to Roman influence and, okay. and to, the, to the Roman invasion. And of course, it, it's their subjugation and oppression that's one of the causes that leads eventually to AD 60 and, and the revolt of, of Queen Boudicca. Okay, well, let's move on to that. So that's obviously a, quite a, an important event in, in the story of Roman Britain, the, the, the big revolt, um, or at least it's one that, that, that we tend to focus on and it's quite famous. Um, so was it a, a, a truly significant event and was there any chance that Boudicca could have could have been successful in, in the uprising against the Romans. 
Well, the uprising against Rome is, is a hugely um, significant event. It, it's, um, it really changes Roman perspective on, on Britain and could have ended Roman influence in Britain in a very sort of dramatic form because you've got two tribes. You've got the Acheni of Norfolk and the Trinovantes of Essex who are rising up. Uh, and the Acheni particularly are a tribe who from the earliest days have been seem to have been pro-Roman. They're what we've often referred to as a client kingdom. Mm. They are on, on the Roman side. There's no forts in their territory. They're left to their own devices. They're probably given large amounts of, of money, sort of loans, to um, boost their own sort of status. And we, we know a lot of the gold found in Norfolk at this time actually comes from Roman coinage and has been melted down and turned into um, Celtic jewellery. So there's a lot of th you know, trade incentives heading the Acanes way. But something goes a bit awry in AD 59 and 60. The, the king, Prasutagus of the Acheni, dies. And the immediate Romans in the area view this as a way of tearing up the treaty, taking over the territory, looting it and really um, oppressing the people as if they had been enemies of Rome. We also hear that the loans that the Britons were given were recalled and perhaps they didn't understand what a loan was. It's not a gift of cash. You know, you have to yeah. give it back with interest mm -hmm. and they just couldn't pay it back. So they're actually treated in a very severe way. They rise up against Rome. The Trinovantes, who are sort of uh, rather um, annoyed by Colchester and the way that the ex-soldiers are treating them, rise up too. And then we get Colchester, London, St Albans destroyed. There's also archaeological evidence that suggests the Roman towns of Silchester and Winchester are destroyed at the same time. So all the Roman infrastructure for the southeast is destroyed. And large numbers of civilians uh, are also uh, killed, Romans as well as Britons. Uh, there may have been a bit of sort of ethnic cleansing going on. The Acanian Matrinovant is actually taking it out on other tribes who had benefited from, from Roman influence. Right. So a huge number of atrocities going on. Uh, and the, the Roman military at that stage are way over in North Wales um, because they've, they've taken all the army out from the southeast, believing that the southeast is secure and safe. And the whole policy has been based on giving the Britons um, a degree of power, actually sort of devolving power to them, letting them carry on and be Romanized through their own tribal leaders. So the, the revolt really is surprising, it's unexpected, and it, it terrifies the Romans because um, so much money and people and sort of investment has been destroyed. And it's only at the very last minute do the Roman legions, or what's left of them, actually managed to pin Boudicca's army down and destroy it in a pitched battle. So one thing you never do um, in the ancient world is fight the Romans on a battlefield. You will not win. Mm. Uh, and in those circumstances, perhaps the Britons are overconfident that they can finally destroy the, the Romans, but they don't. And the revolt is gradually put down. We're told with some degree of savagery. Um, at the end of it, the emperor at the time, Nero, we believe is considering pulling out of Britain, but but can't. He's locked into this sort of um, sort of mindset that if he pulls out of Britain, he is showing that he has lost face. He is uh, damaging his own family because it's his his uncle uh, and adopted um, father Claudius, who who was in um, who invaded Britain in yeah. the first place. So he he can't pull out of Britain at all. He's got to stay there, and they've got to make it work. But from that moment onwards, we don't see much power delegated to the Britons. Perhaps the Romans have learnt their lesson and the British aristocracy, they're a bit more wary about them from that stage onwards. Um, and you know, there's more policy of, of perhaps building towns, making Britain work as a Roman province rather than relying on the natives to do the work for you. Can't really talk about Roman Britain without uh, briefly touching on Hadrian and his wall. Um, so that was built, uh, uh, we're moving on a, a, a few decades, yes, aren't we, to yes. about uh, AD 122, is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, so uh, 
what what was Hadrian up to? Why did he build that wall? Was it just a further example of, of Roman heavy-handedness, or was there something else going on there? Well, Hadrian is really the first emperor to really tour the provinces of Rome, to, to see what's going on in, in each of the areas, to invest in towns, um, and to build up the economies, and to really make the provinces work. Uh, we know he comes to Britain in sort of 121 or 122 AD. Um, it, it, it's quite early on in his reign. And there's an indication there's a serious problem going on in Britain. Irritatingly, we don't get much information about it. Uh, but we, are, we hear that large numbers of Roman troops have been killed, possibly in an uprising, possibly in an invasion. Certainly the northern frontier of Britain is not very clear at this stage. Rome's not very good with frontiers. It, it likes to expand continuously in all directions mm. uh, at this time. But um, Hadrian is quite clear that southern Britain seems to be working at this stage. Western Britain is uh, mineral mineralogically rich. It's you know, gold and lead mines and so on. Northern England and southern Scotland isn't very agriculturally rich to the Roman eyes. They're not aware of any mineral reserves up there. It doesn't make sense to tie up too many troops in that area. It's difficult to Romanize the population. You, you need to sort of invest in large numbers of forts to keep it quiet, to protect the south. And perhaps that's where the uprising or the invasion was. And his solution is just to build a wall because every one of the provinces he goes into, he invests in big temples or bathhouses, structures, monuments that will commemorate him, as well as sort of improve the, the way of the life of the Roman population. So in Britain, as well as sort of investing, say, in, in London with building the Forum, he decides to build the wall. Now, the wall itself is really over the top. It doesn't need to be as monumental as it is, it, it, you know, it's, it's a huge structure, 80 Roman miles from end to end, um, little mile castles, every one Roman mile turrets in between, later forts are added to it, um, nice sort of blocks of stone, well-faced, big monumental inscriptions. It's a real prestige monument. Um, and it seems to just be to definitively, really just define the edge, the limits of Romanitas, of, of Roman life. Everything to the north is barbarian, everything to the south is Roman. And really from York to Hadrian's Wall itself up to um, Newcastle, Carlisle, becomes a really much a militarised zone. But it keeps the south protected and it keeps Roman investment in the towns and mines and villas and, and sort of fields there safe from any potential attack from the north. Just to conclude then, let's talk about um, one of the other most contentious moments in Roman Britain, which is the end of Roman Britain. So um, this year, 2010, we, we're talking a lot about the 1600th anniversary of 410 AD when tradition has it the Romans walked out. But I mean, is that date, does that have any particular significance? And should we should we be worrying too much about that? Or was it a much longer process of it, the Roman withdrawal? The, the Roman sort of, well, right up until about AD 396, we know that Rome is still investing in Britain. Um, they've sent their chief general, a, a man called Stilicho, is over in Britain, uh, investing in building in forts, building up the strength of uh, the, the, the nature of Britain. It still seemed to be a wealthy province. But something critical happens in those, in those final years. Obviously, the, the Rhine and the Danube frontiers go and large numbers of Germanic um, tribes burst into the empire and cause disruption in, within Central Europe really sort of cutting Britain off. But we know that there's a number of people, a number of groups in Britain who are becoming dissatisfied with the empire. The emperor's too far away in Italy to actually be of any use to them. And they're paying their taxes. They're not perhaps seeing any kind of benefit. They want a leader or a series of leaders at home who can look after their own interests. And throughout the third and fourth centuries AD, Britain is a hotbed of revolt and rebellion. There's many um, people who are setting themselves up as emperor in Britain. So Britain is seen to be rather, it's wealthy, but it's difficult. 
it's, uh, it's a militarily quite a strong province, but that also adds to it, it, its difficulties. And we know in AD um, 407, there's a series of um, rebels set up in Britain as emperor, one of whom is called Constantine. And he lasts just long enough to, to be known to history as Constantine III. And what he does um, in, well, as, as the river uh, Rhine freezes over and large numbers of barbarians cross, he takes an army out of Britain into Gaul, perhaps to defend Britain, but more likely to build up his own interests, to march upon Italy and, and create his own empire and own status and, and wealth. So he takes large numbers of troops out of Britain, not to defend Rome, but probably to attack it. In 409 AD, we hear that the Britons are thoroughly sick of this, um, of what's going on. They reject Roman rule. They send a letter to the emperor saying, basically, we've had enough. Um, We no longer want to be part of the empire. And we're told they set up rulers and they set up their own power, uh, discreet from that of Rome. So the, the key thing is Britain has rejected Rome, not that Rome has abandoned Britain. And the, the, AD of, the date of AD 410 is significant perhaps only in that we seem to have evidence that at that date, the Emperor Honorius really just acknowledges the fact that the Britons have revolted against him and says, look after your own defences. Um, really, I can't be bothered with you anymore. I've got problems of my own <laughs> trying to deal out, you know, sort out Italy and, and, and deal with the barbarians coming through. You're up to your own um, devices. Look after yourselves. But critically, he seems to send this letter to the towns in Britain not to a king or an emperor or an individual, but to the towns. It suggests that power in Britain has fragmented, has gone back to the almost tribal level, and every town is becoming its own power base. And we can see that to some extent with the names that we get today with Silchester, Winchester, Colchester. The Chester element comes from the Latin castrum, meaning fortified. So in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, these become uh, fortified centres. These become almost like tribal centres. And that's where power is in Britain. It's fragmented down to the towns. But I think the key event of 409 and 410 AD is the fact that Britain rejects Rome. Not that, as traditional history would have us, or traditional popular belief would have us, that Rome leaves Britain, but it is rejected by the Britons. The Britons have had enough. They reject Roman culture, um, and they look to different cultures, Celtic and and German, uh, where where the Saxons, where the English are coming from. That is where, that's the kind of cultures they want to follow. Those are the kind of fashions they want to follow. They don't want to follow Roman culture and Roman fashion anymore. Well, it's good, good to hear the Britons being so dynamic about it. <laughs> it's, it's the Britons' attitude towards Europe. I'm afraid it hasn't changed very much. OK, well, that's the end of Roman Britain, and I think that'll have to be the end of the interview. So, Miles, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Miles Russell is co-author of Un-Roman Britain, published this year by the History Press, and also of Bloodline, the Celtic Kings of Roman Britain, which is similarly published this year by Amberley. You can read the full feature on the key moments in Roman Britain in the October issue of BBC History magazine. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on the website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. Well, that's it for our October 2010 podcast. Next month, we'll be talking classical city living, Abraham Lincoln and the origins of Halloween.